We have been on a journey through the book of Matthew uh, that we've called Follow Me. And that's what Jesus said again and again to his disciples as well as what he says even today still to us. Follow me. Now, why is that important? Why would we venture down this road and have others come along in this path of discovery? Now, if you have a bulletin this morning where the sermon notes area is, the title is about fasting. Well, Chad spent all week preparing for this message, so I wasn't about to preach that for him. So next week, that outline you have will probably be just as good. So don't be surprised today because we're not going to talk about fasting. But we're in Matthew chapter 14 today. We're still going to do something with the book of Matthew. Chapter 14, starting in verse 22. And the thing where the area that we're dealing with today is entitled the dust of the rabbi. And so I hope to explain that as we go along. But if you, have, if you don't have a Bible, you'll find one provided for you in the pew there. But chapter 14 of Matthew, starting in verse 22. Jesus and his disciples are on a boat. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) My wafer got stuck, and I'm having a... Shasta, would you just bring that bottle here just a second? (coughs) This is like your nightmare, right? You're up and speak and you get something stuck in So, <coughs> still didn't work. Anyway, Jesus' disciples are on the boat. They're out in the middle of the night, and they're trying to get across the lake. Now, when I say lake and Sea of Galilee, those words are used interchangeably. Because if you've ever seen a picture of the Sea of Galilee... In Texas, we call that a lake because it's not very big, but it is a a very dramatic place where storms blow through between two, uh, between a valley area and cause some really pretty dramatic storms to occur on this lake that we call the Sea of Galilee. But reading there, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, He went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly after dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, this is a turning point 
in their relationship because this is the first time we have recorded that they worshiped him. So this is a fresh experience for the disciples as well. The wind is blowing. The waves are getting choppy. Jesus comes walking out to them on the water. They think he's a ghost. And they say, Jesus, is it you? And he says, yes. And one of them, Peter, jumps out of the water and starts walking, jumps out of the boat and starts walking on the water towards Jesus. That's what you would do, right? <clears throat> you just jump out of the boat and start walking on the water. What was Peter thinking? What was he thinking? And why does he believe that he can walk on the water? Wow. We're going to back up and review just a moment, though. And I think the story makes a little more sense to us about why his first response was to get out of the boat and walk on the water, just like Jesus. So let's talk about what led up to some of this. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi with Jewish Jewish disciples living in a first century Jewish world. Jesus grew up in an area or region called the Galilee. And people in this area accepted the idea that Moses, one of their great historical leaders, had been spoken to by God and that he had given Moses the first five books of the Bible. Now, those five books, in, in, if you lived with the Hebrews, they called it the Torah, first five books of the Bible. And Torah means teachings or instructions are the way. So Torah was the foundation or the center of their lives. It was the focus of their education system. Everything in life surrounded, or the, the center of everything in their life was about the Torah. Most Jewish boys and girls would go to school around the age of six, and they would study the Torah. It would probably be led uh, by the local Torah leader who was a rabbi there in the synagogue. <clears throat> and he would usually be found sitting down on a bench or a stool or or. Uh, some sort of uh, some sort of raised platform with his legs folded, and the boys and girls would sit around him. Now, the first level of education was called Bet Safar, and it lasted <clears throat> until the child was about ten years old. So, for the first several years of your life in in school, you went to Bet Safar, and you would begin memorizing the Torah. And so, by t- the age of ten. You had memorized the Torah. Now, remember what we said the Torah was? The first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorized. Think about that. What if every week we just sang songs and you didn't have this? We have a trouble remembering 15 or 20 words, much the first five books of the Bible. Okay, I just want you to want that to soak for a moment. By the end of Bet Safar, around 10 years of age, most kids were no longer going to school. They were apprenticing, they were learning the family trade, they were learning the family business, they were learning to manage a family household. That's when the girls went home and mom instructed them. But the best of the best would continue their education. And they would go to that next level. It was called Bet Talmud. And Bet Talmud was the best of the best that had a natural inclination towards education. And they would memorize the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. 
Now, do you know what the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures was, right? So they learned Genesis through Malachi. They memorized the Old Testament. By the end of Bet Talmud at 14 or 15, the best of the best would continue to, to the next level. And that was Bet Midrash, where they would go to a rabbi and they would pl- apply to be one of the rabbi's disciples. <clears throat> Now, when we use the word disciple, we're talking about a student of someone who tries to learn and know what the teacher knows. But for these folks, during this time, a disciple was a far deeper experience. A disciple not only knows what the rabbi knows, the disciple wants to be like the rabbi and wants to learn to do what the rabbi does. And as you might expect, rabbis had different interpretations of the Torah. They would take a verse or a command and they would say that this is what it means to follow this verse and do this command that God has for us. But another rabbi, rabbi might say, well, yes, but, or maybe not, this is how I see. And his interpretation might be slightly different. Today we call those denominations. But... <clears throat> So different rabbis had different sets of interpretations, and they lived out and understood the Scriptures differently, and they interpreted them differently. So a rabbi's set of interpretations was called the rabbi's yoke. The rabbi's yoke. So when you applied to that rabbi to become one of his disciples, you were wanting to take the rabbi's yoke upon you. Now, most of us know what a yoke is. It's that harness, usually wooden, that's on the shoulders of an ox or a team of oxen. And that's kind of how we've usually preached that whole idea and usually taught about it, that you take on this yoke. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine and 30, Come to me, all you who are, he- are weary and, and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So the picture we normally have of a yoke, and then we learn today by looking at this, that the rabbi had a yoke, or his interpretations. So that gives us a whole new view of this scripture passage and what Jesus was saying there. And I wish we had more time to explore that, but that's a message for another day. So the yoke is not necessarily that harness. It's also the rabbi's interpretations of what God's word says. In becoming one of that rabbi's disciples, you were willing and wanting to take on the rabbi's yoke weren't you? you? You're willing to because you want to be just like him, and you want to learn what he knows in order that you can do what he does, and that, so you can be like him. So you would go to a rabbi, and you would say something like this, Rabbi, I want to become one of your disciples. And so then he would begin to grill you. He would interview you. He would ask you questions about the Torah. He would ask you questions about the prophet. He would ask you questions about oral traditions. Because the rabbi wants to know, can this young man sitting in front of me do what I do? Can this student spread my yoke? Can this kid, or does this kid have what it takes? 
So the rabbi would fire off questions and put this potential disciple on the hot seat and see if he really knew, knows what you expect him to know. If the rabbi thought this kid was good, he loves God and loves the Torah, but he thought he isn't the best of the best of the best, the rabbi might say, you obviously love God, you obviously know the Torah, but you don't have what it takes to be one of my disciples. And then the rabbi would say something like, go and continue learning your family trade. Family trade. Now, if you had aspirations to be in the rabbi's world, that wasn't necessarily the best news for you. But that's the reality because that rabbi could make that decision. But if the rabbi thinks this young man gets it, he thinks, you know, I think you could do that. I think you could. And he would say, come, follow me. And so as this 14 or 15-year-old, you would leave your family, you would leave your friends, your synagogue, your village, and you would devote your entire life to being like your rabbi, learning to do what your rabbi does. This is what it means to be a disciple. So, the rabbi comes to town. He's a powerful rabbi, and he has this little pack of disciples, and they're doing everything they can to keep up with him. They've devoted their lives to doing what the rabbi does. So they're traveling with you. So you're traveling with your rabbi, and you're walking on these hot and dusty and dirty roads, and everything the rabbi steps in gets on you and gets caked on you. And so there developed this saying among wise men and sages in this whole area of the world. And they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. This was a a scene that was familiar in that day. And they knew exactly what it meant to be covered in the dust of their rabbi. So like a a chicken followed by a bunch of chicks. They were just kind of going down the road together. Now this has major implications for how we understand Jesus and his group. Jesus started his teaching around the age of 30. That was when most rabbis began. And he was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he comes across Peter and Andrew. And he walks up to these fishermen, and he says, Come, follow me. Now, if you're a fisherman, and Jesus calls you to follow him, understand they weren't following somebody else. They didn't have a rabbi who had accepted them because they were not the best of the best because they didn't have, otherwise they would be with a rabbi. So they were learning because they didn't make the cut. So they were learning. They were apprenticing. And Jesus says in 19 and 20 of chapter 4, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. And that's strike you as strange this morning? That they just drop what they're doing? Were they in a trance? Is this kind of zombie-like following Jesus down the shore? 
But when you start to look at what comes after that, it starts to make sense to us because rabbis were the most honored and respected and revered people anywhere during this time in that part of the world. Only of the best of the best of the best got to follow along with a rabbi. And if a rabbi comes down the beach and he says, hey, you, come follow me, what's he really saying? He's saying, I think that you can do what I do. I think that you could be like me. So, that's big stuff. Yeah. You're going to be on Celebrity Apprentice. Yeah. I think I'll go. And so off they went. And the text continues. Now, we don't know how long it was. It might have been four or five steps. It might have been a few minutes later. I don't, I don't know. But in, it, right, right after that in John 21 and 22, or John 4, 21 and 22, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. He comes across James and John. They're fishing with their father Zebedee. They're fishing with their father, so they are apprentices. They're learning the family business. Again, they're not the best of the best of the best. A rabbi has not chosen them. And remember, this is kind of the pinnacle if you're of the Jewish faith. This is the top spot. You want to be with a rabbi if they'll let you. So if they're learning a trade, they didn't make the cut either. How old do you think they were? We don't know for sure. They could have been 15 or 16 or 20 or 25. I'm not sure. But we know they're not old men. They're still young. And Jesus chooses them because he's got something going on. He's got a movement that, that is different from hundreds of years of history. What Jesus is doing doesn't sound like what they have been doing for a long, long time. And Jesus is speaking to rich and poor. He's speaking to women and men. He's speaking to educated and uneducated. In fact, it's interesting that later on in Scripture, it's said of them, of these men, that they are like unschooled fishermen. So the position they were in wasn't very high society. And yet they were speaking to very educated people. But they came off kind of like unschooled fishermen. So he calls them the B team, the second and third stringers, the not good enoughs, and they changed the course of human history. You and I are affected by what happened, aren't we? They changed the course of human history. So back to the walking on the water moment. Let's jump back to Peter. So you got this boat full of B-teamers, right? They were not the best of the best of the best. They didn't make the cut. They had walked away from family business practices and apprenticeships and all that stuff, and they had, were following Jesus. The wind is blowing. The water is choppy. They're terrified. And here comes Jesus. Walking on the water. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? But there he is. And they think he's a ghost. Because people don't walk on the water. 
And Peter says, if it's you, Lord, then tell me to come to you. Why do you suppose it was Peter's first response? Thinking about what we just spoken. Why do you think his first response is, tell me to come to you? It's because he is a disciple. He's devoted his life to being and doing what the rabbi is and does. His whole life is about learning to be like the rabbi. And so he sees his rabbi walking on the water, and that's what he wants to do. He wants to walk on the water. I want to walk on the water and be like my rabbi. So Peter gets out of the boat, he starts to walk, he's walking, and you know the story. He realizes he's walking on the water, and he starts to sink, and he says, Lord, save me. So Jesus reaches out, takes him, and Jesus says, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Now, most of us, when we read that, We're thinking Peter has doubted Jesus. But Jesus isn't sinking. So why would he doubt Jesus? Now see, Peter doubts himself. Peter loses faith in himself. He's lost faith that he can actually be like his rabbi. Jesus would not have called him if he didn't think he could be like him. Jesus even reminds his disciples at one point over in John chapter 15, 6, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. It's like, hold it, guys. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And if I chose you, that should mean something. That means I have faith in you. I believe in you. Because the rabbi doesn't choose you unless you can do, lest he thinks you can do what the rabbi does, that you can be like him. Now, faith in God is important. Faith in Jesus is important. But what about the fact that God has faith in us, that his son Jesus told these guys, I have faith in you. I believe in you. I think you can do this. What was the last thing Jesus said to them? The last thing he said was, now you go and make disciples. So he leaves all of this in the hands of the less than the best. So can you be that kind of people? Less than the best? Or maybe you're the best of the best. But either way, the master rabbi believes in his people. And I know that because at the end of the book, at the end of the book of Matthew, he leaves them. And he leaves all the work for them to do. He has faith in them enough to let them stay behind and turn the world upside down. He has faith enough that he's still waiting to come back and he's left you 
and me with the job of affecting the world around us. He believes that I can do this. He believes that you can do this. Let me say that again. He believes that you can do this. He believes that I can do this. And a lot of times we walk around like we don't think we can do anything. I was thinking yesterday at the men's breakfast, uh, we were talking about spiritual gifts. And you know, when you and I become Christians, those of you who are believers have been given spiritual gifts. And I've thought through the years how I've actually heard people say, well, you know, I don't think I have any gifts. Or, well, if I have any gifts, I only have one. I can only do this. He's given us the responsibility for the planet. And we're willing to settle for the idea that maybe I have one gift. There's only one thing I can do. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're living under and beneath the privilege that God has given you. Maybe you have said, you know, I've only got one little thing I can do. And that's all I'm going to do. Because I only have one little thing I can do. And I'm just going to have a pity party. Now, if you don't know me, I just made a face. <laughs> we live beneath the privilege. There are no kings in this room. I'm sorry. There are no queens in this room. There are no multi-gazillionaires here. I bet you none of you are in the Forbes 500. But you've got more than a lot of those guys will ever have. Because you have the power of the living God within you. What in the world else do we need? Well, Bill, we just got this little church. You know, we just try to do the best we can with what we've got. But we see lives changed. We see miracles happen. We're still here. Some of you remember a few years ago, you weren't so sure. God has a great plan for you. He has a plan for this church. And more importantly, he has a plan for you individually. And whether you've still got, uh, you know, 80 years to go, maybe you didn't get to run out of here to go to the gym to kids' church, but, you know, you don't have quite as much time as they do. But all of us still have something important to do, something vital to do in the kingdom of God. Because just like Jesus called men and boys who were not the best of the best of the best. He's still in the business of calling us. He's still in the business of calling you. And he has a plan for you. And he wants you to get dirty. He wants you to get the dust all over you. Because you're so up close and walking with him and seeking to live with him and for him and to know him more and more every day. He wants you to have his dust all over you. And all you have to do is be willing to take it. Because he chose you, but he won't impose himself on you. And this morning, whether you've never received Christ as your Savior, 
or whether you have but you've forgotten that God has a plan, or maybe you've been walking under some deep hurt that you can't get rid of, or that you've got some financial challenges and you don't know what to do, or you're going to, about to lose your job and you're scared to death. Whatever you've come with this morning as a challenge for your life, the rabbi, the master rabbi, Jesus, has chosen you and believes in you and wants something great for your life and says, come, <clears throat> follow me. So that would be the challenge this morning is to get this dust all over you and to be so connected to him that you not only want to be like him and know what he knows, but you want to be every bit of him that you can. Because our journey is about becoming more and more like the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the path we're on. Now, it won't fully happen until we get to heaven. But there's some great stuff that can happen in this life as well. Because we have some real challenges. We have a culture that needs the truth. All you have to do is turn on the news. We have some stuff to share. And your light is a living Example, your life can be so much. You are the lifesaver for someone. You are the best thing somebody knows about Jesus. But you and I have to be willing to be available. Pray with me. Father, sometimes we're willing to settle for less. Forgive us. Sometimes in our, we don't understand what to do and don't know how to do it and we're unsure and we just give up. Forgive us. Sometimes, Father, we are willing to settle and forgive us. Speak in this place. Whether we're sitting in a pew, standing at a pew, up here at the front, whatever happens in the next several moments. Father, would you just speak to our hearts and lives and in turn that we would respond to you however you call us. For we know again and again we see evidence that you said, come, follow me. We want to be those people following you. So this morning, if there's someone that needs to follow you, deeper and farther. I pray that they would release whatever's holding that back and allow you to permeate their lives. In Jesus' precious name, I pray, amen. Let me invite you to stand. Invitations are about you doing business with God. If If you need a church home, we think we've got one for you. If you need direction for your life, someone will be glad to pray with you. If you've yet to meet Jesus so that you can really understand the power of the Lord's Supper in your life, we invite you to come. Come to him this morning as we sing.